Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. This is episode 20 of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, and today I'm chatting with Jay Arbitman, founder of The Sourcing District. Jay is your absolute one-stop shop for sourcing anything and everything you need to make your product, including fabrics, trims, hang tags, labels, and so much more. In this interview, Jay shares why indie designers are seeing more success now than they were five years ago, what materials you can cut costs on and where you may want to spend a little more, and why buying from New York City's garment district is the biggest mistake most designers make. And it's not just going... uh, um to New York, to the garment district, to find fabric. In fact, unless you really know where you're going, going to the garment district to buy fabric is uh, is is a mistake people make pretty early on, and, and usually it's regrettable. Before we jump into the interview, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you enjoy this episode, you can help me get bigger name guests on the show by leaving a rating on iTunes. With more ratings and reviews, it gives the show leverage in convincing higher value guests to do interviews, which brings you even more valuable content. It only takes 60 seconds and I'd really appreciate it. Visit sfdnetwork.com review to leave your rating and thanks for your support and help. To access the show notes for today's episode, visit sfdnetwork.com 20. Now, on to the interview with Jay. Thank you so much for joining me on the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, Jay. Uh, Why don't you start out by introducing yourself and telling everybody listening who you are and what you do in the apparel industry? Well, my name is Jay Arbitman, and I have a company called The Sourcing District, and I supply uh, fabric, uh, garment construction necessities, uh, trims, to uh, indie designers, uniform companies, event planners. Um, about 80% of my business is indie, what I would call indie designers, designer entrepreneurs, however you want to put it. Um, and I represent about 16 different suppliers. So I have an unusual business in that way, in that uh, I, I represent a very, very broad range of uh, uh, of fabric and garment construction necessity suppliers. And then because I was a garment uh, manufacturer for about 30 years, I have a little more, um, well, I guess I understand the need to have some things like, oh, muslin, elastic, labels, hang tags, uh, interfacing, um, all kinds of uh, garment construction necessities. I I probably have a little more in-depth collection on that than a lot of people. And then uh, because of my experience, um, I have some, oh, some guidelines for myself. And, and I'm not, a, as, as people who've met me know that I'm not afraid to share them. Um, but I'm, I'm really cautious on knits, um, on the quality of knits. Um, I think you can buy cheap wovens and, and probably still make a pretty nice product. But knits you have to be careful on. And so 
uh, I, I think my knowledge in that area uh, has been helpful to my customers. Um, I work out of a home office in Oak Park, Illinois. Uh, I do a little bit of traveling, so I get around a bit, and I do some of the DG Expo shows occasionally. But a lot of people actually come to my home office from all over the country um, and uh, visit me here in my little space. And um, uh, it's been uh, uh, a fun and interesting uh, business the last few years. Yeah. Okay. So I'm really excited to kind of dive into this because um, my experience is all in manufacturing overseas. And we typically work with an agent who kind of source does a lot of the piecemeal sourcing for us. And so this is a little bit of a new space for me um, to kind of learn how this all works. I'm really excited to get some questions answered. Um, can we start at the very beginning? So if I am an indie designer, when would be the right time to approach someone like yourself? Oh, pretty early on, and I'll tell you exactly why. Um, if you get an idea in your head about making a garment, um, and, and you know, let's say something very specific, well, then what can happen is if the fabric is not available with real wholesale pricing, quality, and most important, continuity, then you will have done what I call ready, fire, aim. Um, <laughs> Uh, you need to understand what is available, both in terms of materials and uh, quality and type of production, so that you can come up with a product that is uh, uh, that you can make money on. Mm. And uh, you know, there are some things that work really well uh, domestically. And there, and there are many things that work really dom- well domestically. Let me put this in a little bit of uh, perspective for you. Um, five years ago, I offered about uh, a third of the fabric I offer now. So, for example, if you came to me and said, I want prints with continuity, I- I'd look at you like you were crazy. Today, I have thousands of printed fabrics that have quality continuity and real wholesale pricing. Now, when you say um, continuity, you mean I could buy 20 yards from you today and then six months down the road or however much time down the road when I need a hundred yards, I can come back and I'll be able to get the same fabric, the same print, the same quality so that it it's content. Con, uh, I'm fumbling on that word not continuity, but it's, it's, um, the quality is cohesive with what I ran three, six, nine months ago. Is that what you mean? Yeah. You've understood that a lot better and faster than a lot of people do. Oh, (laughs) that's exactly right. Okay. That's exactly right. Yeah. So the idea is to come in the little dance that I think is the, is the thing to do is to come in buy some sampleable amount, which can be anywhere from one to 20 or 30 yards. Mm -hmm. Um, but generally, it's in the five to fifteen yard area. Mm-hmm. That's what a minimum is from a lot of suppliers. And you would buy that, uh, develop your product, and uh, then come back in three months, six months, whatever it is, whatever it takes, and say, "Okay, now I want to start doing some small production, and then I want to start doing some larger production." Now. 
this is not a perfect system because uh, right now, for example, one of the most popular fabrics I have is is out of a lot of colors. They'll be back in in the next three to five weeks, mm-hmm. and that does happen. Sure, but they haven't discontinued the fabric. It's just you know it, it it's so things. Uh, it's not like buying off the shelf at a retail store. Um, you're uh, buying wholesale, and uh, it's it's not a perfect situation, but it's oh so much better than it was a few years ago. There's so much more available. The quality's higher. The prices are lower. Ama- amazingly enough, um, and there's just much more to pick from from many many more people who found that indie designer is a customer that's worth cultivating. Mm. So for a while, that was a market that wasn't being served. And then perhaps as, as the demand grew, these, these fabric mills realized there was a market there. Is that what happened? Yeah. That, I mean, without mentioning the name, there was a designer in Chicago uh, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. And she was terrific. I mean, her things were beyond wonderful. Creative, quality, really unique sustainable. She had, she had every quality you'd want to have in a garment and just couldn't make a go of it. And if she was in business today mm. doing what she was doing 15 years ago, she'd be lighting up the sky. Mm. So what's happened is uh, for indie designers is that is that that uh, Macy's, Walmart, the big box stores, their business is falling off the edge of the earth. And that's because they're not addressing the customer and indie designers are customers want things that, that are stylish, that are, that are uh, sometimes sustainable, that are, uh, that they're not going to see themselves coming and going that have quality. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, for the most part, um, um, you know, the, the, the job of the people at say Macy's is to find out, how to be as vanilla as possible. <laughs> mm-hmm. No one's willing to take risks in these big mass market, big box stores. Right, right. I think their job is for their buyers to come in and say, what were your three best numbers from last year? Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, designers in, in my market, you're seeing terrific newness, whether it's in little girls' dresses or men's shirts or... Um, uh, uh, or, or, or women's sportswear uh, or uh, athletic wear, you're seeing all kinds of newness and you're seeing many times an interest in sustainability that no big box stores really address in a meaningful way. Yeah. And so now with all of this fabric available in the market and with the continuity and the quality and the prints and everything else, it's really making it feasible for these designers to come in, like you said, by five yards, which is nothing, um, to do their sampling and then come back and say, you know what, I can buy 20 yards or I can buy 200 yards. Um, it's really servicing them in the way that they need to be serviced. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. And so the... So the the um, the suppliers that have figured this out, their business is moving forward nicely. Yeah. Now, um, business is different, and I maybe have a little bit more unique perspective 
in this because um, my first day making money in the apparel business was gulp 50 years ago. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I was actually a teenager picking orders in my dad and uncle's coat factory in the mid sixties. And so I have some perspective that other people don't have. So it used to be when you would want to buy fabric, you would go to New York. That was really the place to go. Or New York companies had local reps in Chicago or Denver or Atlanta or wherever. Um, today it's completely different. Uh, I, I represent suppliers that are in Florida, North Carolina, two of my biggest suppliers and best suppliers are in Vancouver, Mm. um, uh, uh, the West coast LA. There's, there's some limited people that I work with there. Um, so there are people, Philadelphia, there are people all over the country and it's not just going uh, um, to New York, to the garment district, to find fabric. In fact, unless you really know where you're going, going to the garment district to buy fabric is uh, is, is a mistake people make pretty early on, and, and usually it's regrettable. We'll talk a little bit about that because I lived in New York City for three years and um, I mean I, I don't have my own collection. I don't manufacture my own product. Um, all the, the production I do is for my clients um, and again as I said it's all overseas. You know, And I spent my fair share of time just wandering around the garment district just because it's a fascinating fun place but how are people making mistakes there and, and what, are, what are they doing wrong? Uh, well most of the um – uh, most of the suppliers in New York, um, they, a lot of what you'll see storefront-wise, they're just retailers in disguise. Mm, that's what I thought you were going to say. So, <laughs> so, so the guy that you may want – now, there's a couple of exceptions. But the guy that you may want to see, he may be on the seventh floor on, <laughs> uh, you know, on, uh, in uh, uh, 237 West 37th Street. Sure. He may be on the uh, on the second floor of some building on 40th Street or 39th. Mm-hmm. So it may not be apparent, and uh, um, and and but there are lots of um, you know. I think the most famous one is Mood Fabrics. I mean, Mood. If you're a designer and you go to Mood, you might as well just flush your money down the toilet. Yeah, they're a retailer. Yeah. And a matter of fact, one of the. Uh, companies that I represent, um, a lot of their collection is in mood. And so you can buy silk, uh, uh, you can buy, uh, silk chiffon from me for, uh, $8 and 10 cents a yard, or you can buy it at mood for 22. Oh, which wow. I think is a better deal. It's almost triple. Uh-huh. Right. Right. So, the, that guy that's on the seventh floor, the guy that's on the third floor in some back corner office, he's hard to find sometimes, right? Right. It was hard for, for me to find. I mean, it took me um, a number of years. To find the now, right guys. Now, <laughs> I lived in New York for 10 years and knew my way around Yeah, uh, and had some connections. And so uh, just a, I have a supplier that uh, – that I sell for that does uh, polyester taffeta, polyester satin, 
um, any kind of silk-like fabrics that are made in polyester, Mm -hmm. uh, this guy does. It's called Oriel Textiles. Now, you won't find these guys unless you you know where you're going. Sure. And if you walk in their door, they'll probably say, what are you doing here? You know? But they're a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful supplier. Low price, high quality, everything you want. Continuity, Mm. big inventory, huge inventory, millions of yards. I mean, just great guys to work with if you know what you're looking for. Um, I found them um, just through somebody I knew who said, have you talked to these guys? You know, and and that was about 10 years ago. so I've put a lot of uh, uh, time and, and energy into, uh, uh, into finding suppliers that were, uh, that were legitimately wholesale suppliers and that, and that had a regard for the independent designer business. That's, that's a big part of it. They've got to want your business. They've got to want, they've got to, you know, when you order, uh, so I, I sell a woman who does bridles uh, in uh, in the Milwaukee area. Yesterday, she ordered two one-yard cuts of some silk fabric because her client couldn't decide um, uh, with by looking at swatches. They wanted to look at a bigger piece. Mm. Well, you know, my person shipped it out the same day. Yeah. Now, so it's got to be somebody that actually wants your business. And... Um, uh, and, and so, and, and one of the things that, that I've learned and what, uh, you know, every supplier I've ever taken on has not been a success story. And I would say the biggest thing is that, that they, they if their initial take is, well, you know, just get me 600 yards of this, 500 yards, you know, that's just not the way people buy when they're getting started. Or even when they're, um, I have a wonderful client who is a big hitter, um, but when they buy, you know, they may buy one, two, three, 15 yard cuts, you know, just to, to develop some product. Sure. And, uh, if you're not patient for that, then you're, uh, uh, you're, you're just not for my customers. Well, that's a great market to service though, because like you said, I think there's been a growth in the number of people who are doing this and there's been a growth in the customer that wants this product. And so somebody has to supply them with these smaller minimums with the continuity. Um, you know, there, it's a market, there's a market demand. And so the, like you said, the ones that are supplying them, it's been a great business opportunity for them. Right. And so, uh, consequently, there's a whole industry that's kind of grown up. Um, you know, there's a specific show now that markets to this kind of a designer. It's called DG Expo mm-hmm. that uh, works out of New York. And they're, they're actually going to start a show in Chicago in December. Um, they, they have a show in San Francisco. I've, been, I've done their show in Dallas. I think Miami, I've done their too, show right? in Miami. Yeah. Pardon me? I, yeah. yeah, I was going to say I've, Miami, I've done, too. Mm-hmm. Right. And so... Um, uh, and and then there are garment construction garment developers th- that have developed that have you know come about in the last ten years. Um, some good, some not so good, <laughs> uh, but they're out there. And there are more independent pattern makers, technical designers um, that you know than existed a few years ago, and yeah. and uh, 
I, th- I think they're easier to find. I mean, part of my consulting business and part of my business is helping people to find those people because I, I know most of them pretty well. Right. Um, and, um, and, you know, I, and I think the other thing is for me is that um, I'm 66 years old. I'm going to be 67 pretty soon. I'm the oldest person I know in this business. <laughs> and um, uh, whereas somebody in their 60s, 25 years ago in the garment business was middle-aged. So um, I have just so much experience. I went to FIT. Uh, I worked on 7th Avenue for 10 years. Um, I've, I've done everything there is to do in the manufacturing of women's apparel that you could possibly do, I would imagine. Yeah. And I've made it overseas. I've made it domestically. Yeah. I've owned domestic factories. Um, and I'm not a I'm not a factory guy, but I've been around it my whole life, so I've seen a lot of it. And and um, it, it you have to understand the difference between what was going on 50 years ago. You could sit back at your desk and say, "Okay, I want to make this garment," and then it was easy to go out. In your, if you were in Chicago, there was a garment district in Chicago yeah. uh, in in the fifties, sixties, and seventies. There is no longer one, and um, uh, there was in Denver, there was in Kansas City, there was a huge garment district. There was in St. Louis. There, you know, every major town had significant uh, uh, garment uh, factories and uh, garment companies. Well, that's obviously no longer the case. All of those people bought their peace goods in New York, for example. I mean, 90% of them. Um, so the business has become uh, more diffused in, in, a, in a kind of a different way. How's that? Well, I mean, again, I think you have to look for fabric and look for materials and, and you know, look for things uh you know, you just can't go to New York and go to the garment district and walk around and buy things. Oh, Yet, right. You have okay. to look. Yeah, right. You have to. So if you're going to buy, for example, uh, you're going to buy buttons. Well, there are really good button suppliers in New York, but there are some other button suppliers that are worth knowing about in, uh, uh, um, I think there's one down in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. There's somebody in Oklahoma who does some specific things. They do wooden buttons. Um, there's a lot of specialized people out on the West Coast. Um, if you're going to buy silk, there's very specialized people who who are in uh, one in the San Francisco area. Uh, there's there's uh, a couple in New York that are really worth knowing about. But again, they're not necessarily in obvious places. They're, they're not in storefronts. Right. And even if you get online, it's going to be impossible to weed through all that information and discover like who are the real, the the real good quality people I want to be talking to. How do I know if this is a good option or not? And so that's where you come in and you curate all of this, all these materials. And like you said, not every supplier you've worked with has been a success story. So you've really sort of weeded through and over just all the years with your network and, and just your travels and and the people you know you've built up this phenomenal library of really great reliable trustworthy suppliers yes that's that's right and and so 
Uh, I definitely do this better now than I did five years ago or 10 years ago. <laughs> um, I, and I have better people that I work with now. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and they've gotten better at it. They've expanded on what they've done. So if you look at, um, you know, I think the number one supplier to indie designers is a company called Kendor Textiles that I represent. Mm-hmm. They're out of Vancouver. Yeah, I'm familiar with Kendor. Yeah, there's just nobody better than these guys in a whole bunch of areas, technical, outerwear, performance fabrics. I mean, you can go on and on. And they'll sell you five yards of fabric. That's great. Which is what makes them phenomenal. Um, and uh, um, they're not giving anything away, but their prices are reasonable. And um, they supply um, in a pretty ethical manner which is something that people are very, very interested in. Yeah. Now, what exactly? Because, you know, ethical and sustainable, those words get thrown around and, and different, they have different right. meanings for different people. So specific right. to Kendor, what would you highlight right. about their product? Well, I think they have, uh, I think almost everything they do is ethical. I think a lot of things they do are sustainable. Okay. So um, uh, what I would call uh, ethical, for example, one of the things they do and I have a couple of suppliers who do this, who buy out of facilities that have Okio Tech Standard 100 certification. And so those are factories that do not pollute, that do not mm-hmm. expose your fabrics to toxicity, do not uh, expose their workers to toxicity. And, and, and that's actually, um, uh, I think that's pretty important to tell you yeah, the truth. Yeah, um, it is. I think that's a that's a, that, that's a pretty big deal. Um, they use conventional cottons. They use organic cottons. They use polyester. They use recycled polyester. They they do a wide variety of 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 fibers, but um, uh, probably eighty five percent of their fabrics come from. Uh, companies that are uh, uh, that that carry uh, that from suppliers from mills, excuse me, that 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 have an Okio Tech Standard 100 certification. Now, the other part of that is the ones that don't are still ones where they have bi- visited the facility. There's no, they're not being made in prisons. There's no sure. child labor. Sure. You know, now that's more prevalent in own products than it is in textiles. Right. So if you're buying a polyester blouse in Walmart, there's probably some discernible percentage of a possibility that that was sewn by a child or a prisoner or a slave. Now that's, you know, it's an ugly thing to say, but like, you know, there's, there's probably some, product in those kinds of stores that have been made in a less than ethical fashion. Sure. And uh, in textiles, because the, the, the process is not as labor intense, it's not as attractive for uh, mills and converters to uh, uh, use labor that that is not ethical. Mm. 
there's not as much labor involved. It's, right, you know, and so they don't they're, need they're, to, you know, pinch, pinch all those pennies and pay people, you know, a dollar a day. Correct. Yeah, interesting. I didn't know that. I had never really thought about that perspective on, on the, the textile manufacturing. Just naturally being more ethical due to the substantial reduced labor required to do that. Right. And so one of the things, one of the reasons that because in the United States, what do we have? We have, we have labor laws, Mm -hmm. we have environmental laws. And, um, uh, so factories, um, um, some pay minimum wage, but a lot pay more. Mm -hmm. And two of my most successful customers, um, I I know what they pay. They pay distinctly more to their sewers than the minimum wage. Distinctly more. That's great. So, you know, you have people making $13, 15 $17, $20 an hour uh, making apparel for companies that are very, very successful. That's great. That's really great to hear. Um, so those for, situations exist on a pretty, you know, on a pretty decent scale. Yeah, no, and that's good to hear and talk about because, you know, we tend to always focus on um, some of the abuse that happens within the industry, but it's also good to highlight that there are good things out there. There are good good people doing good things, taking care of their their workers. Um, so thanks for, for sharing that with us. Um, I'd love to talk. You mentioned earlier two things I wanted to ask about. One was um, the knits quality. You said the wovens you can you can kind of just buy what you buy, and chances are it's it's going to be okay. But the knits is where you really have to be sensitive to the quality. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and like what some of the red flags might be, or how to know if you're an indie designer and you're going in? Like, how would you know what you're looking at if it's good or not? Well, the sample making process is pretty important. So somebody that won't hand you five or 10 or 15 or 25 yards of their fabric to make samples out of, you should be suspicious right away. (laughs) So your first red flag is if they make you buy a large quantity. Yeah. And, you know, listen, I I say some things and I'm going to repeat them here that that people may find to be unfair. And may find to be uh, harsh. Okay. But I have three rules of, uh, of textiles that I think you kind of have to live by. And one of them is, I would be the first one to tell you, is controversial. But I'll explain it a little bit. Um, so the first one is when you start with junk, you end with junk. Mm-hmm. So you can't use crappy fabrics. And I'll go back and talk a little bit more about that in a second. The second one is, as I mentioned before, you can cheap out on woven. So you can buy... Uh, inexpensive cotton gauze for two ninety a yard, and it can be quite wonderful. But if you're looking at a cotton spandex knit that's two ninety a yard, you can pretty much bet the farm that it's a piece of junk, and that you'll have problems with shrinkage and torque. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to lay and right. It's going to start to get that's correct. twisted. It's that's it's correct. those it's it for any bone out there who's ever bought, you know, a, a cheap shirt, a cheap t-shirt. You know, after you wash it two or three times, it kind of twists in the body. The side seams don't lay straight, and it just fits really awkward. Right. Yeah. So, and then and then the third one, and this is where I would be the first one to tell you that this is an what I'm going to say is a little bit unfair, 
But it's certainly, and that is, uh, everybody in Los Angeles is a liar. Now, that is harsh and probably not 100% true. However, a lot of continuity does not come out of L.A. There's a lot of, don't worry, it'll be there from people who aren't really prepared to make it be that way. Los Angeles is, uh, um, is a different kind of fabric market. Now I represent three companies that are based in Los Angeles out of the 16 that I represent. Mm -hmm. And I think two of them are pretty wonderful companies. And then the third guy is a guy that has some things I can't get anywhere else. And, there's limitations to what I do with him. Mm. But from what you've seen, they tend to be an overpromise, underdeliver market. It's one way of putting it, right? I don't. Um, uh, and their desire to sample is they they want you to buy rolls of fabric. Don't you know? They don't want to sell you ten yards. They don't want to sell you five yards. Okay, so again, that big first red flag is if they force you to buy a whole bolt run. Yeah, well, you know, there's times where that's a good thing to do. Sure. You know, and, and uh, but um, I think to go to L.A. to buy fabric is a very difficult task mm. because I think that it, it is a lot of people where they're, they're one of the big things that they're working on is price. And again, if you want to make knits, price is, is the last thing you should be looking at. <laughs> um it's it's all about quality and you know the the most successful people in that market um on the you know on the supplier side um they're making really great quality now their prices are okay mm-hmm. but they're not trying to sell anything for 3 or 4 dollars a yard right so you said if you want to you know go to LA and um try to buy fabric that's it's a jobber market it's a, it's a jobber market. That's well, the best way to put it. Heidi. Okay. It, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, so it, talk about jobbers because this is, um, you know, that's something that I think a lot of us have heard thrown around. Um, but a lot of people listening are not going to understand what that means. So explain the jobber mm-hmm, market. Mm-hmm. So, so here's the levels of, of fabric that you can, you know, here's the different people you can buy from. Mm-hmm. You can buy from a retailer. Okay. So what does a retailer do? You'll be able to buy any amount you want but there will not be continuity and most retail fabric is sold off of bolts, which, which can create a, um, a crease in the fabric. So that's not always desirable. How does it do that? If it's rolled on a bolt, it's folded. It's a rolled is not folded. A bolt is folded. Oh, Okay. Wow, the I bolt didn't. is the is the, is is the, the cardboard inset right that's folded flat. Right. Ah, okay. Right. I didn't so, know I had to. So there was difference between those sell, words. Which you know probably ninety percent of what I sell is 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 what's called um, uh, ROT rolled on tube. Okay. Now I sell a little bit of bolted fabric again because I can't get it any other way, and mm-hmm. um, um, and it's 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 quality or it's things that, you know, have worked out. But the other problem is if you are a, an indie designer and you develop some product product that is only available on a bolt, 
Now you go to a factory, they don't want to uh, spread and cut fabric that's on a bolt. They want fabric to be on a roll. Mm-hmm. So that's that can be an issue. So so retailers kind of disqualify themselves from being reasonable because of their price, because they have to mark things up uh, from the uh, original supplier in a way that's not uh, desirable for you. Right. And because everything's on a bolt and because they don't have continuity. Right. Then the next level of people you're going to find are jobbers. And jobbers are is an entity that buys fabric that they may buy it from a, a converter or a mill. They may buy it from a, uh, um, uh, uh, from a garment producer, but they're buying leftover fabric and then they're selling it sometimes at a discount. There are some good jobbers where depending as an indie designer on your needs, um, they may fit into what you're doing. Um, but you better make sure that it is a, uh, that is a jobber that has an eye on quality and has, knows what they're doing and has, uh, uh, um, uh, because once you buy that fabric, you won't be able to get back into it. Any jobber that tells you they can, they can, uh, reliably supply something with continuity is generally stretching the truth. Okay. And a lot of times, like you said, they're buying um, from garment producers. And so sometimes they might be buying either just leftovers or rejected, yep. which winds up being defective fabric and selling that to you. Because I've heard stories of that where you buy the roll, they promise it's first quality, and then it gets to your cut and sew facility and they unroll it and there's a bunch of defects and you're like, oh, what do I do now? Right? Very common. Okay. I mean, you know, yeah. not... Now there are good there are good people in the jobber business. Sure, they're not all, you know. It's like car salesmen. That, that would not be an un, <laughs> they get a stereotype. Story. <laughs> right. right, and now I, I don't represent any jobbers. Okay, that's, that's you know just something that, and I know some good ones, but I don't represent any jobbers at all. Okay, um, that's not the uh, the profile that I try to uh, maintain. Now there's 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 a new entity in a way, and that is fabric importers who do have continuity, they're not actually producing anything themselves. They're buying it generally from overseas entities, sometimes from domestic entities, but they're stocking it in a way so that you can rely on them for continuity, quality, and for real wholesale pricing. So mm -hmm. they're, they're buying so much uh, uh, white cotton Oxford shirting that they're getting you, they're giving you a terrific price and terrific quality. And when you go back to buy again, it's going to be there. Okay. Um, so they're, they're, a, they're like a jobber on super steroids <laughs> with, um, uh, so one of the, uh, actually two of the suppliers that I work with who do that, both have inventories over a million yards. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So yeah. And, and, uh, um, those, you know, those people exist yeah. and, um, um, and you can rely on them for, for continuity and quality and all the good things that, that, uh, um, 
that you want. Now, the, the next entity as you kind of move up the food ladder is what's called a converter. And a converter goes to a mill, which is the next entity up the food ladder, and they say, okay, sell us your 200 gram per square meter, 66% cotton, 28% cotton, 66% bamboo, 28% cotton, 6% spandex, uh, Jersey Mm -hmm. and make it in these colors and finish it in this way. And so they're ordering, um, uh, uh, they're kind of customizing their menu. And then there's the mill. And the mill's actually the, 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 the person that either weaves or, actually or makes knits the, the product. Right. However, whereas, again, 30 years ago, we only bought, we never bought from a converter, we bought from mills. Today, I can't think of anybody that really buys from a mill who's, a, who's an indie designer. Yeah. That's just not the structure of things anymore. Yeah. Well, there's really high minimums, and it's essentially they're they're developing custom fabric for you to some extent, or at least dyeing it custom, and it just gets high minimums, and it's expensive. Um, if you want to do anything less than than their minimums, you have surcharges and all sorts of fees. If they're even willing to work with right. you, right? And then, right, and then um, uh, because these entities are generally overseas. Um, you may be able to buy something at a great price, but then you've got to move it to the United States to manufacture it. And if you're, if you're doing that in a, um, what's called uh, less than a container load, mm-hmm. um, then your freight's going to be very high. So if you're a converter like Kendor Textiles and you're bringing in 35,000 yards of fabric, well, your freight costs, you know, from, from Asia are going to be pretty low. Yeah. But if you're a designer in Kansas City and you want to bring in 300 yards of a custom-dyed fabric, good luck on the freight. You'll get murdered. Well, yeah, and just to kind of further explain um, that, I mean, I can visualize it because I've imported a lot of product, but just the logistics of bringing product in from overseas, whether it's fabric or the finished garment is it has to fit onto, into a box. Then those box have to be packed on pallets and those pallets are packed into containers. And there's a lot of logistics. I mean, there's companies you can hire just to do that, um, to fit your product into the pallet, into the container. And it's very expensive if you just need to buy a tiny little fraction of that space. Right. Right. So one of the things that gets confusing for uh, a lot of uh, startups is they said, well, you know, if I was doing this in China, it would be so much cheaper. Yes, that's true. <laughs> if you were buying 25,000 of that, it yeah. would be cheaper. Yeah. But you want, you want to make 50. Yeah. Now, if you're making 50 of that in China, then actually the price is probably less in a domestic factory. Yeah, absolutely. So, so domestic production is the one area of garment production in the United States that's going up. Importing is, you know, taking a beating. Yeah. But, but garment production domestically, now it's a small part. It's 3% of the, of the, of the garment business right now, 
but it's a 3% that's growing. Yeah. So like in Chicago, for example, where I'm from, there are quite a few contractors to choose from and some really good ones. Mm -hmm. And some that have just opened up in the last couple of years. Yeah, we're seeing um, it in the Denver market as well. Yeah, you, 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 there. I have customers in Denver who are who've been making pretty steadily in that area, uh, in a you know in a pretty big way. Yeah. Now you know one of the one of the things that also is important to recognize is the regional nature of the apparel business. So if you're in Denver. Rainwear is not very important, but yoga pants are. <laughs> if you're if you're in Chicago, barn jackets might not be really big, but um, you know rayon spandex dresses uh, are important here. Um, it's it is, uh, it, and so that's one of the things that has handicap big box retailers because whereas let's say in denver you used to have may dnf you used to have i can't remember the names of all of them but there used to be uh all kinds of different department stores in denver that were particular to denver now what do you have you have macy's you have nordstrom's you don't you don't have uh and so you, those people who are going to market and buying for those stores, they're based in New York. They're not based in Denver. Yeah. They don't know the what your so that so you when you go into uh, uh, a Macy's, you may see an inventory that's very similar to the inventory in uh, uh, in Chicago, for example. And that's where the independent designer has a tremendous advantage because um, if you're goddess gear in Longmont, Colorado, you're, you're really, you've got your eye on that, you know, on sustainable fabric on you know, on a certain type of styling that really is applicable to um, your out West woman. If you're, um, um, Elizabeth Suzanne in Nashville, Tennessee, you're, you're selling all over the country, but you're making a style that, that has a lot of appeal for that local market also. So that you're, you, that's one of the reasons indie designer is, is better than it's ever been. And, and probably is a, is a growth market because you're not trying to find, um, that one item that'll work. You're trying to find what appeals, you know, you, you're able to design with your, with, with, with what appeals to you and what appeals to your marketplace. You're not trying to make the, uh, a real vanilla homogenized, uh, 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 look like Macy's would be trying to do, or even Nordstrom's. Yeah, and it's a great point. It's something um, that I chatted pretty extensively with Anna from V. Mora, who I believe you work with as well. She's out of Chicago, 
And that was one of her biggest pieces of advice to these indie designers is, you know, don't try to create something that's for everybody. Like figure out who your customer is and really serve them. Um, And you'll see, you know, if you can talk directly to that person, you can give them exactly what they want. You'll see better success than if you try to create something, like you say, vanilla that's for everybody. Because there's a bunch of other people out there that are already doing that. And on some level, that model can work. And, you know, some people just want vanilla clothes and that's fine. But there's also these really specific markets that nobody's talking to. So how can you service and talk to them? Um, just right. To, yeah. So, so I, have a, I have a customer here locally in Chicago that her market is um, women who are breastfeeding. Mm. And um, she's, she's doing pretty well. And and uh, that's obviously something you're not going to find in Macy's or Walmart or right. or Target or Nordstrom's. It's a real specialty. Um, right, right. Um, I have a uh, uh, a client that is doing real retro stuff for little girls. Well, you know, you're just not going to find that in in big box stores. Yeah. Um, they're trying to hit the middle of the middle. So I, I think that's what, what Anna, uh, who's you know one of the really knowledgeable and uh, people in our business and who has a good instinct for all this, is is saying to her customers, is you can be niche, and and you can be a big success because mm-hmm. in in the indie designer business, if you do a few hundred thousand dollars, you can make a lot of money. Yep. You're not you're not trying to do two billion dollars. Yeah. You, you know, you're trying to do and, and I have a customer where I, I know a little bit about what they're doing. And I know they're doing about one point three million dollars and they are floating in dough. Just making a fortune. That's great. And so uh you know, they're they couldn't be happier <laughs> with what they're doing. And um uh, I, it's just not the same as the kind of go go eighties, go go nineties, where people were. Let's you know we're going to uh, uh, do mergers and acquisitions. That's not what's happening. This is a designer who you're trying to show a little bit of your heart and soul. And and I think that one of the reasons that I've developed what I've developed is to address that that precise customer. Yeah. If somebody can walk in and say, I'm looking for really beautiful knits, or I'm looking for very, very fine cotton shirting um, that's going to be uh, available easily and uh, is going to have low minimums. And, you know, that, that's what I'm looking to supply. That's great. Um, I have a couple of questions on that. Before we get to that, I want to um, – we've talked about it a couple times throughout the conversation, but the um, product being discontinued. So with some of your suppliers, what are you seeing – like, what's the warning time on that? Are they saying, okay, we have this, but we're only going to stock it for six more months? Or, you know, if I'm an indie designer, should I be asking about that? Are you planning to discontinue this anytime soon? Or what am, what am I really looking at in terms of preparing myself for something being discontinued? Well, first of all, let me say that I represent 16 companies that do things 16 different ways. <laughs> there, There is so... Um, a lot of times I have a pretty good sense about that stuff. I miss sometimes. Um, 
Kendor just discontinued about a half a dozen colors and added about a half a dozen colors mm. to some of their most popular fabrics. Okay. Um, but if now, I was running one you know, of those colors that was discontinued, would like how would I find out? Let's say I'm running it right now, and I know I'm going to probably want to do another round of production in three months with mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. And they all of a sudden decide to discontinue it. Like how how should I go about finding out about that so that oh, as they announce it's being discontinued, I might be able to jump in and buy a hundred more yards that I could, I'd rather just hold for three months, knowing that I'm going to need it. You know, just trying to plan ahead, or am I just going to be SOL come time? Right, right. So I have a lot of that happening right now. The good news is when they discontinue things, they discount the price. <laughs> so I can go to some of my uh, people and say, hey, look, this is your last chance. Okay. And that $5.90 fabric is going to be $3.35. Okay. So let's let's go at it. Great. So they are giving uh, somebody a chance to get in and um, uh, supply themselves uh, hold some product without a lot of economic damage. Yeah. However, and I can't emphasize this strongly enough, not a perfect situation. Um, look, I think there are fabrics when someone walks in here and I can, you know, pretty, uh, pretty safely say, here's a fabric that's in, that tends to be in stock in a big way. If something is out of stock it comes back into stock in two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, I sell muslin from a company in New York called guide fabrics. Um, Every once in a while they run out of something. So you may have to wait 10 days, but they don't ever discontinue any of their prime time fabrics. And so, you know, I'm a little selective when I work with people. Um, I don't want to sell them the the things that are are kind of uh, dicey. Sure. Um, or, or I certainly don't want to sell them without saying. And, and, and you know, honestly, this is something I've learned over the years. I mean, I've I've gotten burned. I, I can think of one specific customer who I sold something to, and. And, you know, within a few months, it was discontinued, and I probably should have had more sense. And, you know, one of the advantages I have over other people is I've made so many mistakes that I've learned from. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, you know, other people with less experience, they just haven't made those mistakes yet. Yeah, it is a huge learning um, curve. Years, years, yeah, years. But a lot of it, yeah, right, right. But a lot of it is, um, so I had somebody uh, email me yesterday and ask me about a particular fabric that they had run in the past. Is it still available? And, um, you know, I'm able to call up the, uh, uh, the sales manager of this particular company and say, how much is it in stock? Is it something you're planning on going forward? And I can get, um, the information. Um, and I did, and I came back and said, okay, here's what's in stock. They are planning on going forward with it. So, um, one of the ways you can, you can protect yourself, is to ask a few questions. Now, that said, um, these are wholesale entities. So if you're worried about where that next five or 10 yards is coming from, your your supplier may not be as 
uh, thinking that that's quite as life and death as you do. <laughs> I love the way you phrase that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, so there's, you know, again, it's not somebody going over to the shelf and pulling three yards off the shelf. Right. Um, if you buy, so Phillips Boyne, which is a, a woven cotton supplier, a lot of shirting, um, they do be- lovely fabrics. Now they have a three yard minimum and they have really fast service. I mean, they'll ship three yards within a day or two. Wow. Um, and they allow me to log into their computer system so that I can see what the inventory and the on order is mm. and the date the on orders can arrive. So they're really great to work with. So, so, so 99% of the time when someone orders from them, I'm, I'm pretty well informed about what's going to take place in the future. Right. Um, you know, I mean, these are, these are, these are good questions and they're ones that I, along with my customers are constantly asking and looking at. And, um, uh, you know, asking questions is a good idea, but, uh, just keeping things in a little bit of perspective works too. It's not a perfect system, but I would say that the overwhelming majority of the people who buy from me are able to get back into fabrics. Um, they don't get discontinued on them. Okay. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen that often. Okay. Now there are suppliers, the way they do things, like I have one supplier, they, they will run something until it doesn't run anymore and then they're done with it. So I'll, you know, I'll, I'll say to a customer, this is the nature of the way they supply this fabric. So you may or may not be able to get back into it. Uh, you, you, you certainly don't want to count on getting back into it in six months. You can get back into it in three months. Sure. You know, and, and, and again, one of the tricky things about this, Heidi, is that every supplier has little twists and turns in the way they do things. So it's all about, like you said, asking questions and just knowing what you're getting into. And if you're okay with that, then that's okay because maybe there's, you know what, maybe you present it to your audience as, hey, this is a limited run. Um, Absolutely. And that can add like a little little selling feature benefit to it is, you know, this is limited stock. We're only going to be able to do this. This is never going to be available again. So that's almost, you know, on some level, maybe it's good that we can't always get everything over and over and over, right? You know, it's, it's, it's part of, of what's in the mix, you know, um, um, I don't want, I I have built my business on continuity and I'm a big believer in it. Mm -hmm. However, there, there certainly is a place for some limited run fabric. Um, uh, and I have some of it, but it's not what I do every day, but it, it, but I, you know, uh, it's it's part of what I do. Yeah. And I just want to, um, you know, I mean, we've been talking about fabric the whole time, but you source and supply way more than that. I mean, almost everything you would need to to create your product from the fabric down to all the stuff that goes on inside the garment. Like you said earlier, the elastic, the zippers, the buttons, the hang tags, the labels, all that stuff, correct? Right, right. Yes. And, and, and sometimes... And this is where I bring up this thing about, you know, you sometimes you have something in your head, but you don't understand the tools you have to work with. For mm-hmm. example, 
Um, one of the companies I represent, they're called Micken Print. They're a company in North Carolina. And while they are a label, you'd look at them as kind of a label and a hand tag supplier, but they're also what's called a narrow fabric printer. And narrow fabric printing means that they can print on anything from an eighth of an inch to uh, five inches wide. Mm. So they don't print on full width. So let's say you wanted to use bias binding and you wanted that bias binding to have your logo on it sure. or to have a print on it or to have your, the name of your company on it. Um, let's say you wanted uh, twill tape that you were going to use to trim a sleeve and you wanted to have your logo on it. Or so, so, so narrow, narrow fabric printing can, can be that really what they are. I always like to think of them as branding specialists. And they can make your garment uh, more identifiable and they can do it in ways outside of just um, labels and hang tags. Yeah. And, and then um, there's, again, you know, some experience I've had. I know that um, I always want to be careful when I'm selling elastic. So the elastic that I sell is all made domestically. Because inexpensive elastic uh, can shrink in the laundering process. So you always want to buy elastic and twill tape that is color fast, heat set, or pre-washed. Um, and, and again, you know, I, not to uh, you know, toot my own heart about this, but I have a lot of pretty practical ex- experience in this area. So I'm not just looking for the guy who has a lot of inventory or the cheapest price or whatever. There's, there are some products that are very uh, quality sensitive. And um, interfacing would be one of them. Yeah. Um, elastic. Uh, there, there's, it can, I can go on and on with it. Well, and it's so important because there's so many of these little things like as an indie designer, how are you supposed to know that until you maybe learn from a firsthand failure because you made your 30, 50, 200 items with this elastic and you wound up getting a lot of returns or customer complaints because when it washed, it bled or it shrank and that can be hard to recover from. And so if you go out there and you just blindly buy all this stuff and you don't really understand, you know, where can I, like you said earlier, you could probably skimp a little bit on your woven's quality, but you can't skip on your knits. And when it comes to the elastic, this is what's important. I mean, that's priceless advice that you're not really going to learn overnight. That takes, like we talked about a couple times within the interview, that's stuff that you just kind of learn firsthand year after year after year. Slowly you gather all these tips and tricks. Yeah, I've taken a pretty good beating over the years. <laughs> and you you go out there and work with these indie designers so and protect them from those beatings. <laughs> well, you know, I, I try to, but yeah. um, you know, you're going to take a beating. You're going to make mistakes. That's of part of the process. I, you, you uh, a lot of times you you have to make some samples to figure out what the right fabric is. Mm-hmm. If you look at the fabric. You can't always determine how that's going to come out in a finished product. Right. No, you can't. 
you know, I, I, I always have people who will grab a piece of knit, hold it up to a light and stretch it and say, look, I can see through it. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, it could be a, a 400 GSM potted aroma. And if you put it up to a light and stretch it, you're going to see through it. Yeah. Um, so um, you have to make some samples and, and uh, uh, you know, try to keep your wrists at the beginning minimal. But, you, you know, you've got to break some eggs to make an omelet. Yeah. I love that. Um, Jay, this has been so much fun and really, really great advice that you have to share with everybody and such a great service you're offering all these amazing indie designers out there. Um, I You have a, a, a home showroom in Chicago and you do the DG Expo. If I can't make it to either of those places um, or I just am really antsy and I want to get in touch with you right now, like what? how does that work? Do I just reach out and call and say this is what I'm looking for and you can send me some swatches? Or what does that process look like mm-hmm. if I can't physically mm-hmm. come or see you? Right, right. Those are all good questions. So here's what you would do. Um, um, you can call me. Uh, my telephone's number is 708 388 Six eight five eight six. You can email me at j j a y at thesourcingdistrict.com. Um, I think looking at my Instagram feed can be uh, a really good thing to do. Um, I have well over a thousand fabrics and garment construction necessities uh, pictured on my Instagram account, and that's under the sourcing district. Um. But, you know, picking up the phone is probably not the worst thing to do. <laughs> Depends what what you want to do, yeah. you know, if in what you want to make. Um, for some people, I really, I say, you know, you're going to have to find a way to get here or you're going to have to find a way to see me at a show or, or to see me when I travel. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, other people, um, I am able to work it on the telephone or, or through email. Okay. Depends what you're looking for. Sure. Well, that's really great. And I'll put um, all of your contact information in the show notes for everybody listening. Um, and and I know they can also go to your site at thesourcingdistrict.com. And we'll put links to all that in the show notes. Um, but thank you so much. I want to end, uh, Jay, with one question that I ask everybody at the end of the interview. Um, and that is, what is one thing that people never ask you about working in the fashion industry that you wish they did ask? Oh, I just wish they would uh, uh, look down the road at the budgeting part mm. of it. Understand that it takes, you know, uh, it takes a decent amount of money. Now, okay. it's not impossible, and it doesn't necessarily, depending on how you do it, take an absolute fortune. Mm-hmm. But I do have people who step up and talk to me who really don't understand that it's that there's some money involved here and that you're going to have to, uh, you know, that there's, it's not a freebie. You need a little cash to get started. Yeah, right. I think, I, you know, I think it takes a few bucks to do this and, and it takes some time. Uh, it, 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 it's, this is not for a, an impatient person. <laughs> it's not a quick win. No, I do think that somebody who walked into my office five or six years ago, I think I felt sorry for them. Today, 
there are people getting started pretty successfully. And I think on a, you know, a, a lot more frequently, um, we're seeing people who are, uh, moving into the marketplace with some success and in some cases, a lot of success. Oh, interesting. So that's something that five or yeah, six years that ago, last three, four, yeah, the last three, four, five years and, and on an increasing basis. Oh, Wow. And you, so when you said you felt sorry for them, maybe five, six years ago, walking into your office, someone coming in and saying, I want to do my own thing. You felt sorry because they're the, the percentage of success rate you saw back then was lower than it is now. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. That's really inspiring. If you're, if you're doing, um, I'd say particularly women's and children's apparel. See, those are really, you know, there's there's a, there's an appetite for for product in those areas. Mm. As a general rule, there's a there's an appetite for product in those areas. Yeah, that's great to hear you say that. Really inspiring. Um, yep. Jay, thank you so much. This was really really fun to chat with you, and I will share all of the links to your resources with, for everybody listening. And um, thanks for everything you're doing and for sharing all the great advice with us. Great, great. I had a lot of fun talking to you. Thanks, Heidi. Thanks for listening to episode 20 of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, visit the show notes at sfdnetwork.com slash 20. And since you made it this far, you must have liked the episode. I'll remind you that more ratings and reviews gives me leverage to convince higher value guests to do interviews, which brings you even more valuable content. If you can take 60 seconds to leave a review on iTunes, your tiny bit of help goes towards making the show better for you and everyone. It's super easy to do and I'd really appreciate it. Visit sfdnetwork.com review to leave your rating and thanks for your support and help.